You know, I think it's her father. <laughs> Why can't they find her pops, man? Because he's probably dead. His body will come popping up in the last reel somewhere. Eyes gouged out, fingers cut off, teeth knocked out. See, the police are always off track with this shit. If they watch prom night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it. A very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and today is episode 92. We are, I believe, further along in our lists than the amount of time it would have taken William Henry Harrison to be president. And we're getting close to James Garfield, like in terms of percentage of term done. Oh. I think I may make this a running thing where we talk about how like we defeated another presidential term. Okay, I'm I'm on board with this. Yeah, I'm, I don't I'm actually, understand it. I'm actually, but let's do it. Ditching this idea right now. <laughs> Out in the open, it sounds not as good as it sounds. Yeah, in your I'm head. just I'm brainstorming on air because that is the best thing to do. Or it's a it's problematic because the president we wish would spend the least amount of time in office has already has already outlasted all of these people, and it just is sad. I know it's too too much of Barack Obama. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to say that. Oh no. We're in we're in a new era now, Mario. Oh jeez. You can't discredit or say anything mean. Could you imagine Barack if Obama. somebody like listened to this and like listened to all of our episodes was like that guy really did not like Obama. This is Brady Snellis, if you ever heard it. Yeah, he's just like I'm 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 like a patron of this man. Or Armand White. If Armand White ever listens, he's like, <laughs> fuck that guy. <laughs> um, um Oh god. What happened there? James Pinch Pokey owe me a Coke. Oh my god. You are definitely a dad. Instead of buying me a Coke. You can buy me a beer. I already did that. Oh, you saw, look at and this. And look at this. Just Segways. materialized out of nowhere. This is the beer of the day. It is Connecticut Valley Brewing Company's Trailblazer. They list it as a New England style IPA. However, uh-huh. it is most definitely a double IPA. They also list it, it as a true 8%. American beer. Yeah, what's that mean? Mm. Do they explain what that means? It's not a Budweiser. I mean, well, a Budweiser is owned no by not, not not owned by a they're owned by. There's a, also an essay written on the back. Yeah, a long essay about um, the the can art shows a motorcyclist who is, I believe, Albert Pope. Huh. He owned a motorcycle company. Uh, he created the Pope Cycle, which is shown on the front, which is uh, the original a, Pope Mobile. Yeah, which. Yeah. No. Oh, I was like, I don't think that's true at all. Um, two together. Anyhow, this was a Hartford, Connecticut factory that apparently made the most of any motorized motorbike ever. Which I don't, you know, Connecticut hmm. history. That's that's interesting, I guess. Anyways, as has shown, I don't really care about Connecticut history. <laughs> um, this is from Connecticut Valley Brewing out of South Windsor. Hmm. Uh, so let's just pop this open. I don't think, I've had it a couple times before, but not in a while. I don't think I've ever had a Connecticut uh, Valley Brewing Company beer. I think I say I've never had a Connecticut beer, and I was like, "Have you not been on these last?" But I do have amnesia, days? so I don't know if we can make that joke. <laughs> what is this? There has to be amnesia. Con- that's there might listening? be a contingency that's like really solidly into the Awakenings class. Everything. They don't really have amnesia in that. Uh, was that regarding Henry? 
Regarding Henry. Regarding Henry. Dinked. Oh, you started picking up the dink down too. That's the thing. Uh, a lot of mango and pineapple on the front. Pineapple. Um, yeah. And it's the malt. Yell. The malt's pretty neutral. A lot of reviews I'd said that says it has a bite at the end, like a bite, like the ABV bite, the, that that crispness you get from high ABV beer. I don't get that I don't at all. Think so. That's a nice smooth finish. Mm-hmm. I, I remember why I like this. It's very drinkable. Yeah, it's fruitier than I expected. Which is good, but it's not like that. I don't. It's got a different fruit. It's a different. I'm not a big fruit. like juice bomb guy. Like you know that juice bomb. I wouldn't call it like, a juice bomb. No, but it's no, got but I'm a not a big juice bomb guy. Hint. Um, in the sense of like that orangey, mm. peachy beers, but this is more tropical. The hoppiness of it mixes well with that like subtle pineapple flavor. It almost makes it a kind of, um, like a bigger hop flavor. Uh, yeah, it's like a, a big, juicier hop flavor. It's a big tasting beer but it's not like overwhelming and it finishes soft yeah. it has a nice feel on the mouth i don't know what they're talking about with that bite no i think people are just wimps when it comes to high abv beers mm, i drink good. a lot of high abv beers they have another one from connecticut valley that's like they call it a double and i believe it is 11 hmm. percent, which is basically a barley wine yeah that is somehow an ipa at that point but that's also that has a bite to it at the end. Mm-hmm. That's also still very like neutral IPA in my, nice. my opinion. I think it's called the Last Frontier. Ooh. We might have that. Well, later. we'll get it one day. I actually enjoyed that one. Though you somehow won't know if you'll be driving after that one, though. We'll just stay here all night and record podcasts. That'll be our first 24-hour episode. <laughs> we'll be able to do like the video game side channel thing yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to do for a while. Um, Talk about God of War. Fuck that game. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to go down. Nope, we're not doing that. I'm just going to say that. That's it. I All right, so let's, before off. we go down the video game road, let's uh, let's talk about some new movies. Let's never go down the video game road. Yo, to prevent it entirely, let's just see a bunch of new movies and talk about I it. I mean, you know, until like Rampage 2 comes out and sweeps the Oscars. Oh, yeah. That'll have to be quick. Yeah. Okay. Besides a bunch of Burt Reynolds movies. Oh, have, have I saw exactly zero. <laughs> um, All right, so other than that, did, you, did we see anything? Did I see believe anything, we... Mario? <laughs> Are you setting me up to say what we both saw and planned to see? Because it was support the girls. Yeah, that's how this works. Oh, okay. I, just, did, I didn't follow along, but oh I've, well. I've been typing this script up for today's episode for a week. <laughs> I work off You script. can follow along. Okay. Um, yeah, so we both saw support the girls, um, directed by Andrew Bujalski. What else oh. did he direct? He's a mumblecore guy, right? Yeah, he's considered the godfather of mumblecore. His uh, oh dear. first movie was uh, Funny Ha Ha, which I saw. Actually, just today. It's on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Really, really missable. Mumblecore? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, but see, I like Mumblecore. Um, but I, I prefer like the Joe Swanberg, Duplass Brothers sort of Mumblecore, which kind of has a little bit more structure, has maybe a little more purpose, and this was very much leaned into the Mumblecore ideology of mm-hmm. just like, not even in media res or day in the life, but so much just semi-affluent white people. Like several talking. several in moments and several days of several people's lives. Who you know maybe has a has a middle class white person more like yeah this is this is every day yeah I don't need to watch this. Um, then later on he would do uh, Computer Chess, which I also saw, which was okay. Um, his most recent film before this was Results, which was kind of like his first movie release that I saw that was more of a put together production, mm-hmm. known actors such as like Guy Pearce, Kobe Smulders. Uh, Kevin Corrigan, um, Anthony Michael Hall doing a really 
awful, weird Russian esque accent. Oh, I gotta see that now. Um, that's on Netflix. Uh, that was meandering and boring. Uh huh. Um, and so leading into this, actually, that's not true. I saw Support the Girls before I saw any of those movies. <laughs> uh, but leading into that, typically, I would I would not expect a lot from this film, but uh, it surprised. I think uh, maybe you can quickly do a quick rundown. This is a pretty small film overall. Yeah, um, it stars Regina Hall as Lisa, who is the manager of a Hooters-esque uh, theme restaurant. Double whammies. Florida? No, Texas. Texas. Um, I think most of his films take place in Texas. Texas. I, that's what I read, but... No one speaks with Results a, a very Texas. significant accent. Yeah, um, no, here, not so. really. Haley Jill, Haley Lou Richardson has a little does. bit of one. Um, and but the only reason I knew that is all the license plates have Texas. Oh, okay. See, it context clues, motherfucker. I'm paying attention to the license plates. You know what I saw that? Actually, it's a weird thing I always do. Huh. Whenever I watch a movie, I have to look. I look at the license plates. I go like, "Where are we?" Weird. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good clue. Um, so yeah, Regina Hall plays Lisa. She manages Double Whammies. Um, it's a day. It's yeah, a day definitely in the media res sort um, of thing. It, once again, it's you know from she opens the restaurant, um, she loses her job at the restaurant. Uh, there's a moment at the end of the movie where she's already left, where um, the other two main characters, uh, Macy played by Haley Lou Richardson and um, Danielle played by Shana McHale, um, kind of stage some inappropriate shenanigans and, and they get fired. They break rule number one of no drama. No drama. Um, I mean, there's no real, the, the, the story, there's no real specific, one specific plot point that you can hang your hat on and say, this movie is about this. I mean, they, no, exactly. there's a story I mean, there's, where, I there's, think thematic aspects of it that it definitely sure, speaks to. Sure, but there's to. the girl who, um, got in the car accident with her boyfriend and at the beginning of the movie, the girls, um, at Double Whammies are trying to raise money to help her get a lawyer yeah, so she can sue. Support the girls. Right. Thing. Um, um, There's also the kind of overarching theme of the fact that Lisa's been fired a couple of times by Cubby, uh, the owner of the restaurant played by... Uh, James LaGrosse. Who is in everything, who's one of those kind of, hey, it's that guy, guys. I, I see, I, I didn't really notice him from anything. I didn't even look up what he's doing. Oh, really? In. He's yeah. going to be in a movie we talk about in a couple of weeks. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, one of the, on our list? On or, our list, yeah. Uh, just not... But if you look it down his, you know, his Wikipedia, I mean, not on my list, right? That'd be embarrassing. On my list, <laughs> that'd be real embarrassing. <laughs> Maybe he is. I don't know. <laughs> um, but so he, he's about. He's apparently fired her a bunch of times. He has. He's various, made the threat at least. Right. He has very specific rules that he wants to adhere to with this restaurant, and many of them problematic. Many of them problematic, but also they Lisa kind kind of can't adhere to them because her, she sees her role not so much as just the manager of the restaurant, but as the person who is supporting these girls. Yeah, she has a very maternal role. Yes. Um, and as you said, I think somebody, uh, Alicia Wilkinson from Vox, kind of made a good point about off going off of what you said about there's not one exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that Lisa's day is basically a living illustration of occurring a thousand mosquito bites. And oh, that's, that seems overly I mean, poetic, yeah, but true. Maybe, that's true, but... Uh, it is one of those things where, you know, she starts out the day kind of, like, weeping. So it kind of, like, sets the stage yep. for, like, what's to happen. So there's nothing that's really drastic or dramatic, but it is many small things that happen. And this kind of films kind of how Lisa faces constant sort of oppression mm-hmm. or just absolute 
what's what's the word I'm looking for here? Oh gosh, as a podcaster, I'm I feel the, like I should have should have the, the vocabulary for this. Um, well, I'm not sure because I don't. think She's taken advantage of quite a bit. Yeah, but she's almost letting herself be taken advantage of, so the girls don't have to be taken advantage of. At least that's the way I perceive it. So she's almost and not a martyr because she doesn't get anything out of it. She doesn't feel the kind of positive results no, she, personally of having taken the fall for somebody or putting herself out there where no one else put themselves out there or putting herself out there in a way that makes her situation more precarious. Um, she doesn't have any of that reflected martyr glow after the fact. Like, no, oh, I, you know, I did it. You're all appreciating it. Which when she's interviewing at man cave near the end of the film, that kind of like pinpoints everything she's been saying where she says, you know, like, First and foremost, I want to be there for the girls so they don't have to endure this. Right. Um, so it's not so much a martyrdom aspect. It is It is just basically making sure that she can shoulder that burden sure. so that they don't. But even beyond that, like even in her personal life or outside the girls, you know, the relationship with her husband um, kind of shows that the, even outside of her work and outside of that main premise that there's still people kind of taking advantage of her in, in some degree. Um yeah, I mean, I think that's and that's one of the strong points of the movie. I think is that they've taken a fairly simple idea, <clears throat> excuse me, a fairly simple idea, and made it really more complicated through the performances and yeah. through the writing. So there's clearly something up with her husband. Yeah, no, exactly. There's, there's there's a separation there, but he's also not. He's not a stereotype, and he's not easily pigeonholed into like, oh, he's the guy that does that. Like, there seems to be an element of maybe, de- maybe depression. Yeah, no, exactly. Something. Um, he leaves it kind of open ended, so you don't, you aren't really sure, and it doesn't really matter. You just know that she's been taking care of him for a long time, and is trying to push him to take a little more care of himself. And by the end of the movie, he he does. Spoiler alert! After the spoiler, you we assume he does um but in the same way like i said she doesn't get any of that reflected martyr glow like she doesn't feel a, a sense of accomplishment no, it's just her job because that's immediately that that's immediately followed by the girl um is it shana i believe shana, was her name? yeah uh who you know she, she got the money for immediately after her husband's kind of taking that step to to do something mm-hmm. um talking about leaving the computer he's always on uh, you know, Shana just shows that she's going to use the money to go back to, with her abusive boyfriend for his hospital bills and right. everything that she's done that risking her job and risking like even maybe even her employees jobs is kind of for not. Um, so it's kind of like when she has one step forward, there's another step back. Well, I think she gets she's a complicated character in the sense that I think she assumes that her employees aren't going to take advantage of her. And here is an and to this point, none of her employees do seem to be taking advantage of her. They all seem to value her in her role. And she can get through her day knowing that these people need her mm. and that her, the role that she's playing, you know, has value not to sound redundant. Um, but when Shayna says, when she's confronted by Shayna's boyfriend in her apartment, um, and then she asks for the money that she gave her to be given back. She, you get the sense that she's been doing this all, under the impression that everything I just said was going to continue to keep happening. And when it doesn't, that's when she can't do it anymore. Yeah. That's, that's when she really like, she almost breaks early on with Cubby when Cubby kind of like has that kind of weird emotional breakdown himself. Um, But this is where the first time she really kind of breaks. Right. uh, Because she's not doing it for Cubby. Cubby is immaterial. She's doing it for the girls. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think 
oddly enough, someone who liked this movie a lot was um, Armand White, everybody's oh. favorite movie critic. Um, For those who don't know, Armand White is a notorious contrarian who likes to pontificate in a very verbose and articulate way why he dislikes films that everyone else loves. Or why he likes movies that everybody else hates. But for example, Transformers movies. Or um, while everyone else is throwing glowing effusive praise at the MCU, he is rejecting the MCU and really aligning himself to Zack Snyder. Yeah. And what he's been doing, what he's been doing over at DC. What um, was doing. What it was doing, yeah. Um, so it's it was odd to come across his review. And again, he's He's generally very contrarian, so and this review isn't any different. Yeah, this movie, this movie got met with high praise. Yes, um, I mean, I mean, beyond a, its like Rotten Tomatoes score, it got a really high Metacritic score. So it's not only well reviewed; it's pretty abusive. It doesn't get it didn't get a wide screening. I think the closest place it's showing is at the Jacob Burns Center in Pleasantville. Yeah, um, but it, it made a hundred six thousand dollars so far in like three weeks of release. Right, which is maybe appropriate. For yeah, this movie no. maybe this is a movie that's going to find it is available via streaming it, it is, is on available Amazon, yeah. for streaming um but armand white while rejecting going out of his way to reject you know um black klansman and moonlight and every other movie that people that the liberal media has decided to say is an excellent movie for reasons he doesn't really understand he kind of goes out of his way to say that um lisa is the first true personification of the African-American female experience in America. Um, which, I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's... I, cannot, I can't speak yeah, we, to that. We cannot. But there is something to, about the honesty of this character and the honesty of this movie where they don't ever let... Well, they don't ever let politics intrude on telling a human story and see, this is why i really enjoyed this movie is the fact that there is systemic instances of sexism and racism throughout it mm-hmm. um there there's the rainbow rule which says that that cubby creates what says that there can only be one black woman on shift at any point right um and lisa does a slight pushback on that but ultimately she kind of gives in not necessarily gives in but ultimately she kind of agrees to it and it gives you a sense of this is just the constant kind of stream of racism they face in kind of this working class America, blue collar America. This is what they have to deal with. Um, and kind of just shows you like the doldrums and the, and the, and the forcefulness of it. And right. like there's, she still has a strong voice. She's not accepting of that. And that's said completely when she just, you know, she says I'm done with the job and, and is looking for, uh, you know, a way to advance herself in a part where maybe she could have a little more of a voice. Um, but it kind of just shows, like, it doesn't make a point of making an issue. It just says this is a way of life right. well, for that's, them. I mean, so that's kind of – and White says the exact same thing in his review. And he kind of points to all the other movies and says um, that the mainstream media's routine neglect of black female class anxiety and everyday struggle um, is, is because – they the mainstream media is always turning these people into causes mm-hmm. so they're representative of a very a very specific cause um he has a pretty hard hitting group of sentences there where he kind of dismantles some of the more prominent african american roles that females have played recently which i won't go into i could see, i could see something about 12 years a slave in 12 there. years a slave and precious and 
Um, and I uh, had the help. Yeah. Um, and while I don't want to 100% agree with him, and while I don't, I don't 100% agree with him, I actually do think he's right in this regard. Where the movie doesn't, and maybe it's because Bujalski's white. Maybe it's because he's male. Harvard, Harvard right. graduate. So he doesn't have to. He's an, he's an affluent white right. man. He's he's in line with our experience. So he doesn't have to address these things. Because we're both for Harvard himself. graduates. <laughs> um, but taking the director's intent out of it, that stuff is not in the movie, and it's better for it not being in the movie. It is simply an example of how people of a certain class of a certain race of a certain subculture of american society get along with the everyday necessities of living yeah and that means that you deal with a little bit of pawing knowing that if it gets beyond that there's cops on the other end of the you know on the other side of the partition to come and take somebody away um, but at the same time, knowing that it is constantly clawing at you, that it, there was constantly that, that issue of, you know, having to deal or accept these sort of things, and that just is constantly biting at you, you know, that these little things that you have to accept because of your position. Well, I think it's an interesting... And that's what it says very subtly. Yeah. It's interesting that at the end of the movie, Macy and Danielle just go back to working. They try to get a job at Man Cave, which is, a you know, another Hooters offshoot. That focuses more on the butts instead of the boobs. But it's a more national like chain or maybe more in line with like a very clinical sort of experience. But I think it's I mean it's I'm And that not... and that is also even more so reductionist. You know, it they, they kinda go out of the way that Brooklyn Derek Decker character goes out of the way so like, oh, we're just here to idiot proof it for the women and like kinda right. like den- denigrates the, the women who work at this job. But it's interesting as in the individualizes that I think in a normal movie it would have had they would have had the Regina Hall character kind of build these girls up. They would have shown these girls, you know, with musically enhanced, pop musically enhanced montages walking into the office buildings to get secretarial work or other things. But they don't because they don't have the skills for that. They have the skills for this. This is like a realistic universe where when you get fired from one of these places, your instinct is to go get a job because you have to get a job because one of them's a, a single mother and the other one, you know, we don't know what she has. She was dating an old man for a while because he was nice to her. So let's just assume that she's she just need these people need to work. So instead of the dishonest or the fantastical idea that they would be somehow uplifted, they are uplifted enough to recognize the position that they're in. They're uplifted enough to recognize that you know, this is what I got. I have to do this. Yeah. I, I would like to do something else. But until that something else materializes, I have to do this. And not to mention the fact that like it is, this does take place over the period of maybe you know a week. Uh, most of it takes place in one day, and a lot of that's saying that there's other forces at play that would be the people that you know have to do a lot of the heavy lifting to give these people the opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, when when there is a system constantly in place, even though it might be working class itself, uh, that Cubby character is fairly working class in a sense. I mean, he's he's. He's well off. He's fairly affluent. Well, the symbolism of that is well. He's he's, he's fairly affluent. He's comfortable. The, the he's symbol, comfortable. Well, we don't even know how comfortable he is because the symbolism of that scene where he gets cut off on the highway and he follows that guy all the way home to a really affluent neighborhood, gets out of his car to confront him, and that guy just punches him. Yeah. Without him even saying anything, he says, "Get off my property! I'm going to call the police." 
and then Cubby just sits down on the on the curb. Like he's not that guy. No, I think he wants to be that guy, and he thinks he should be that guy, but he's not that. But guy. It's, yeah, it's, it's basically everyone just kind of being held down in their own way, and then in turn holding down somebody else. Right. Um, like that, that constant struggle of power, um, almost. So that we like to talk it's, about it's, class on this on this show. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of that there. I think there's a lot more authentic representation of of class in this film for mm-hmm. me at least. I mean, once again, uh, clearly saying it from positions of people who don't have the authority to talk too much talk about, about them. Talking about movies, man. Um, beyond that, though, Jesus, Regina Hall. Regina like, I always fantastic. knew she was a good like comedian. Um, I loved her in the, the scary. She's like the best part of the scary movie mm-hmm. films. But she's fucking excellent. She's in this. very good in this. Um, Haley Lou Richardson is just good as always. Always good. Um, Once again, as I said last week about John Cho, Columbus. Yeah, Columbus seems to be you know one of those movies that kind of stands out. But, but primarily because of I mean the cinematography, yes, the direction kind of, but also because the actors just do a fantastic job of it. Yeah, I also really like Shayna McHale. As Danielle, I her first role too, right? And I thought it was like a really layered, honest performance of what this person probably has to go through every day of her life, and she sells it. Yeah, no, there's Um, there's really no performances that. I mean, I I think this movie doesn't work if any of the performances really fail, mm -hmm. or you know, you know, are starkly kind of in that mumblecore, very lo-fi, yeah, sort of thing, which this movie's you know above, but teetering on the the edge of that mm-hmm. um and none of that happens here no did you ever read i mean you may not have read it i think it's a fairly obscure novel but um that Stuart onan book nope last night at the lobster nope okay so it's a book that where roughly the same thing happens it's one day open to close at a red lobster that's closing um i think i've heard of this though. it's a sli- you know it's a slim book it's like a hundred and maybe 80 pages mm-hmm. it's pretty good but it does something similar in the sense that they're trying to say that, you know, all those people that work in that chain restaurant that you go to all the time that serves you your weird, never-ending pit of lobster and, and shrimp and whatever else, they're actual people that have actual lives and yeah. actual things going on. I think this movie, um, while generally the same premise, takes it a step further by not, you know, this, they, they talk about the store closing occasionally. But it's not that kind of impending doom of, no, it just of is, them yeah. of it closing, which which removes the kind of um, theatricality to the it. The theatricality in in the the lack of that kind of systemic breakdown, where it really focuses on these people's on these people's lives. You yeah. don't have that sense that like everybody's losing their job. This whole thing's breaking no, down. Like three people it's in just the these end. Three people, and one of them jobs. basically quits. You know, right. Um, and the other two quit as a result of her. I mean, the other two are fired as a result of her, basically allowing herself to be fired. And I think that was a it was it's a smart, it's a smart choice, and it's a smart movie, and it's a movie that people should go see. Yeah, we we keep doing pretty glowing reviews of these uh, a block films. I'm excited for the for the movie we see that we we don't like, we really hate. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, like. Um, Sorry to bother you. I, I wasn't a huge fan of, but we still respected. Um, I still respect it at least, and, well, and you liked a lot. Um, this is an interesting year for movies in the sense that I'm not sure that there's anything prestige-wise that's going to come out that's going to break my fucking door down, like last year. Um, I think a lot of my movies are going to be these small movies that make an impact, 
just kind of doing whatever they can with whatever they've got. Watch, watch you nut all over a star is born. I will not. Watch, watch it happen. No, it's just uh, Bradley <laughs> Cooper would have to magically transform himself into someone that doesn't make me want to fucking vomit when I see him on screen for me to like a star is born. <laughs> Anytime I see his face do anything, it's just the end for me. So I don't hold a lot of I don't have a lot of hopes for my. No, I think I think I think this is going to be definitely a year where smaller or um, smaller maybe our first time directors kind of make a, a bigger impression than than those prestige mm-hmm. directors. Um, there's a few prestige directors have films coming out this year. Roma being one. Roma being one. Um, David Lowry has one. Yeah, Lowry. Julian Schnabel has one that I'm waiting with bated breath to see. Yeah, that's a that's a. A disconcerting one so far. Why? I don't know. Atter- the, the, it's at Attorney's Gate. It's yeah. about Vincent Van Gogh. Some of the dialogue from the trailer seems on the nose. Um, it's fine. still looks like a beautiful film. Like So at the very least, it'll be visually striking. But, that's all, that's all uh, I want. Yeah. Just wanted to be and also Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper has a movie. A Star is Born. <sighs> I think with that, we're uh, going to take a break and come back with our number 92. Welcome back, everyone. My number 92 needs a little backstory to really show why it's a pivotal film of mine. Mm. It was December, or maybe January of 1997. No, it was December 1997. I was sick with a stomach flu at home, and all I really wanted to see was Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, which had just been released on VHS. Which we will be talking about later? Uh, 17 times. <laughs> We have special guest stars coming in. And so I was laying at home. My parents had gone to a Blockbuster video, mm-hmm. which is a video rental store. We used That's to call so... them Tommy K's around here. Really? Really? Is that there was Blockbusters, but we also had Tommy K's. We had Hollywood videos out west as well. Yeah, I don't know if we had any Hollywood videos here. There was one in North Haven when I moved here. Oh, really? Overall, I don't know. Wow. They're too that was prevalent. Weird. Um, and so I was sick. My parents came back with Austin Powers. And another movie. We watched Austin Powers, and it was fine. It was entertaining, goofy, whatever. Fucking Mike Myers is Mike Myers. So I Married an Axe Murderer is still a better Mike Myers movie. Than Austin Powers? Yeah. Yeah, I would say it is. Austin Powers is actually not that good Austin in retrospect. Austin Powers is terrible. I just still respect the second movie because of Heather Graham. No. She's pleasant to look at. Nope. But anyways, after that... My parents had rented a second movie for 10-year-old Mario to see because they thought he would enjoy it in the sixth state. And that movie was Wes Craven's Scream, my number 92. This is, without a doubt, probably my most watched movie of all time. I've seen it around rough count 60 times. Wow, that is a lot of times. That is an egregious amount of times. 61 now. And if I was a filmmaker of any sort, I think this would be my most pivotal film. Uh-huh. In no uncertain terms, it shaped how I'd want to make a movie. Hmm. I like to always consider the fact that if somebody gave me 10 to 20 to maybe even $100 million and said <laughs> you can make one feature, I would like to make an, a sad adaptation 
of Dante's Inferno because for some reason that's always been stuck in my head. But okay. I wouldn't do that. I would I would make a slasher movie. Huh. And all of that comes from this. I don't have a lot of notes written about this movie. I don't have any the they're intellectual. All in, they're all in your brain takedowns i don't care about the fact that it was a cool deconstruction of horror which it was you know i was a big fan of i saw i think i've mentioned this before on the podcast i saw halloween at the age of six my parents said i was okay to see it Mm -hmm. i saw child's play at seven the only thing they didn't let me see was friday the 13th because they thought it was too gory don't really get that one and texas chainsaw massacre um yeah but i had seen but like friday the 13th is that much more gory than child's play i never got Mm -hmm. that one my parents just didn't like old hockey, I guess. Um, <laughs> I have from seen the West Coast. plenty. Yeah, they didn't understand what hockey was. Yeah. They thought it was something celebrating Canada and like anti-nationalism. That's no good. Um, so I'd seen my huge share of horror films. My favorite movies of that age were horror movies or Disney films. I was uh-huh. a real fucked up kid. <laughs> um, and so Scream was the first horror movie I had seen, the first slasher film I had seen, a genre I love that spoke to a generation I understood. Mm-hmm. There was a dead period in horror in the mid '90s. Yes, as Owen Gleiberman says in his review, he enjoyed Scream, but he says I seriously doubt Scream will spark a splatter movie revival. I was fucking wrong on that he one. He was very Jesus wrong. Yeah. Christ. I I could see what he's saying because at first it came out and it was a very small movie. It ended up blooming. It has a very small opening week and ends up blooming into a big success. And but it doesn't seem groundbreaking, and I don't think it necessarily is groundbreaking. Three years earlier, or sorry, two years earlier, in nineteen ninety four, Wes Craven had written and directed uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which does almost everything that Scream does. Mm-hmm. I think maybe even slightly better and more interesting. It's not as well acted. It's not as well written necessarily, but in terms of its grandiose nature and in terms of that kind of meta breakdown of horror, mm-hmm. new nightmare is much more interesting. I'd seen new nightmare actually. Does it break it down out in the open or does he try to break it down kind of a meta horror movie? It's a meta. It's very much a meta horror movie. in the fact that new nightmare basically brings back all the characters from the first nightmare on Elm street mm-hmm. has that they're, they're playing their actors oh. and nightmare on Elm street exists as a movie. Oh. And Freddy Krueger. Isn't that Scream 2 or Scream 3? No, that's not the Screams. So Screams, basically what happens is they create stab as a reflection of yeah, Scream. Yeah, 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 that's right. But the Scream events, okay. the Woodsboro murders and everything about that. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's the most brilliant takedown Scream, but it spoke to me on every single level. <clears throat> In the fact that it was a very 90s movie. You know, the, the way that they talked, the way they dressed... The events going on, the early days of the internet, cell phones. I mean, there's a big twist in this uh, where Billy Loomis, the, the boyfriend of Sidney Prescott, mm-hmm. uh, drops a cell phone. And you watch that today and you're like, man, he has a cell phone. But then in 1996, you're like, why the fuck does that guy have a cell phone? Right, and, right, right. and like those kind of moments of horror spoke to you. Whereas if I think a child of my age, of my age at the time, saw Scream now, they'd be like, well, he has a cell phone, man. And like they needed to explain to them. But this was the first time where, like, all the horrors and all the marks of a horror movie and all the kind of, like, cliches of a horror film worked for me. And I didn't need any explanation. It just was a movie that I felt was made for me. And made in the sense, too, that one of my favorite novels is Agatha, and at that time still, was Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved the whodunit, especially the whodunit where people are getting picked off one by one. Mm-hmm. And the number of suspects is decreasing. 
and then you're left with just a few handful of people and eventually you know one of those people ends up being the killer and this movie was that no it's so yeah. exciting and and after this movie came out i was obsessed with seeing all the 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 films that followed it you know i know what you did last summer which is average um you know faculty teaching mrs oh, tingle man. teaching mrs tingle i didn't like that movie faculty's okay but all like the kind of like the Valentine, all those movies that kind of followed in its wake, and I yeah, just became yeah. obsessed with this like world of horror even more so than I was before. Is like this this connection where I thought it was cool, but now it like spoke mm. to me, and like horror spoke to me, and I well, I truly got it. Sounds got like it became like a worldview. Like, yeah, you know, Wes Craven. I'll say how bad it was. One <laughs> okay. of my most anticipated films of two thousand and five oh, was man. Batman Begins. Yeah, the second most anticipated film of two thousand five was cursed the, what is cursed <laughs> it was the first film that kevin williamson the writer of scream and wes craven the director of scream uh-huh. did together it's a christina ricci jesse eisenberg werewolf movie oh man that was cut down to a pg-13 by harvey weinstein and it was just horrendous outside of judy greer playing like a playing up a pretty fun villain oh man judy greer she's been around forever <sighs> poor I judy want, greer i want her to be around forever more so she could do more cold cut commercials? And just to look at. <laughs> Keep that in. That's fine. Nobody, nobody, nobody appreciates Judy Greer. No, they don't. Yeah, Judy Greer is a fucking awesome. Which is like something that the culture is going to have to reckon with when she dies. But they're going to be like, oh man, she was great. Oh, son of a bitch, we missed our Judy Greer but time. This is the movie where, I, like I said, I don't have a lot of notes. Because I can still name every actor and every character off of this. I can't name you maybe the director of production, but I do know Patrick Lessier is the editor and would go on to direct uh, Vampire 2000, a movie I saw just because he had edited Scream. Huh. So if we're talking the essence of a pivotal film, mm-hmm. of a film that made me dwell into film, this is the pivotal film. It's just not a good enough movie to be higher on my list. So it's like your version of The Accidental Tourist, but le- like more pivotal? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yes! Got him. Oh, man. Could you imagine Scream directed by fucking Lawrence Kasdan? William Hurt would be in it. It'd be awesome. Well, that would actually be. William Hurt instead of Henry Winkler? Mm-mm. Huh? How fucking dare you? No, William Hurt would play the dad. That's true. Yeah, that'd be good. So you just get like one shot of him like tied up. Neil. He'd play Neil Prescott. That's right. Off the top of my head, I just remembered the dad's. They wouldn't have, this... wait, they wouldn't have tried to like make a case against him. Like, he's just weird. It's got to be him. He's so weird. <laughs> look, look at how he's scowling. Why the fuck is this guy scowling? Why he's, is he so morose? He's mumbled every word he said to his daughter through this whole movie. <laughs> it's just one line of dialogue early on where he's like talking about going on a business trip. And yet, <laughs> yet there'd be so much like gravitas in that scene. Yeah, oh, I he, know. Be, and actually, that film would probably twist. Actually, that'd be a more interesting film. If he just followed like Neil getting kidnapped by Stu and Billy. Spoilers, uh-huh. by the way. Go fuck yourself if you haven't seen it. Um, and just like what he's like doing, sitting there tied up like in the trunk. Yeah, or in oh, the yeah. Closet. I'd, I'd watch that movie. That'd be a good movie. Look at that. Still, still like the creative juice that's flowing. And like, I literally, after seeing this movie as a 12 year old, spent a good hours writing various scripts of other horror slasher movies. Like, this, this got my creative juices flowing. This movie just exists in this world where it just spoke to me as a creative force. Well, it's funny because I was going to have the same conversation um, about. My number. Ninety-three. Ten accidental tourists. <laughs> Ninety-four. I'm gonna have the same conversation about my number ten movie. Um, about the exact same thing about how seeing it 
opened the doors to not for that one, not a whole genre, but for just a whole group of people that you wanted to know actors and musicians and writers and you know editors that you just wanted to dig into more because yeah. they were responsible for making this movie. And I think that's the thing. Like people, for me, you know, people do that fanboy kind of nostalgia over Star Wars, Back to the Future, Star Trek. Sure. That sort of thing. But they kind of commit to it as being the number one essence of art. And luckily, I think, for me, in some sense, Scream was that. Mm -hmm. So it made me fanboy over film in general and how, like, a film was made. And, like, this is the first time I looked into the background and all the production issues and, like, deleted scenes. It's the first time I cared about any of that. Mm -hmm. But luckily, Scream isn't so revolutionary in anything it does. It's just really competent and entertaining. Yeah. That I could at least step back and like still have this where it is on my list because I know that films that are higher on my list that I spent you know ages curating this list, I realize just are much, much better films and that that had a role in more eloquently shaping how I see film. It, 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 they added nuance. This is just kind of the after dinner mint. As it were, that, that that really cheap Andes candy that, well, that so, gives you a taste and hooks you, but doesn't really give you the finesse. And you can uh, also your number ten is a significantly better film, so that makes sense. Yeah, but I mean that doesn't um, in how we're going to talk in how you were talking about it. It's it's you know roughly the same. You're talking about yeah. it the same way that I'm going to talk about that movie. I mean, just to throw something to throw something out there, and um, are you is your affinity for this movie and how deeply you got into it? Um, related at all to the idea that when you saw it, you didn't 100% appreciate like the sarcasm or the kind of fuck you attitude that it seems like he made it with. No, I I got that though. You did. Like, I got a lot of like, as much as like I would get at 11 at that time. Um, but like that snarkiness and that playing up like the rules of horror or mm -hmm. that playing to the expectations of horror, I knew because I seen some horror movies. for years yeah. a lot of horror movies but i mean he i mean the story generally goes that he did all that stuff because like nobody was going to see his movies yeah right no, exactly and like, so he was just people kind of under like, the stairs was his last moderate success and that was still middling i think it was made on like a 17 16 million dollar budget mm -hmm. made 36 million worldwide nobody saw vampire in brooklyn because it fucking sucks nobody saw new nightmare which is good. which is unfortunate new nightmare i think is really entertaining mm -hmm. and it's the second best of that series mm -hmm. of a series that you could just ignore all but three of them yeah one three and new nightmare if anybody really wants to get into the nightmare and elm street series this is the one time we're going to talk one time we're going to talk about it watch those three i've only seen or two two is interesting because that's like this a lot of homoeroticism to it hmm. and it's like a really weird tale about that and it's just interesting from a filmmaking perspective but it's a garbage movie it's not a clive barker movie no, that's no, not. Um, yeah, because like when I watch it now, it almost. And you saw this when it first came out, as well. Yep. I mean, and I so was. So you were fourteen. I was fourteen when it came out. Yeah. Um, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I think we saw it like as soon as it came out on video. We, you know, me and my friends rented it and took it home. And this was Scream had Two. Whatever thoughts we were going to have Scream about Two Drew ends up being the only second movie that I saw opening night after independence day i needed to see it opening night weird i was grossly sad when randy meeks died 
I thought he lives throughout the whole series. No, he dies in two. Oh, weird. Um, seems like a missed opportunity. It was. It's it's pretty lambasted in like the history of the series. Um, we could I could do a separate podcast about the series. I'm not going to do that, but I fucking good. <laughs> you should. That'd be, nobody um, would listen to that. Actually, that'd become like more popular. That'd be, that'd be, be the like, one. Yeah. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. That's well, fine. The director is dead. I'll just add that to my other list of huge, embarrassing failures. <laughs> um, no, because I would just no, watch this. On it. We both watched this movie this week, right? Yeah. For this I watched podcast. It twice. I have. I, I watched think, it twice. I think I've seen this movie. Maybe. I also watched two and four. <laughs> That's fine. Don't watch three. You got to get ready. Um, I think I've only seen this movie three times, and all. You're 120th of the way there. I. Didn't give a shit about it the first time I saw it. I'm not a horror movie guy. I'm not yeah. a slasher movie guy. I think... you know, if we he's, wanted... he's about ready to vomit. That's how much he hates slasher movies. If we wanted to make a theme of this um, tonight's episode of the podcast, we can compare who does who does stabbings better. Um, I do call the... I did, Wes Craven I did or, the, or, the, or the guy in our... I did give a temporary title of this called Fervent Descent, by the way, because uh, both of our opinions on each other's films. Yeah, there you go. Um, I do think your guy does stabbings better. Okay. Although, another little trivia piece. Okay. Wes Craven had to lie about the stabbing of Drew Barrymore in it, which is like a pretty direct stabbing, because uh-huh. of the fact he said he doesn't have another shot of that. He had multiple, but he had to take that because the MPA won yeah, yeah, NC-17. Yeah. I'm going to stop doing trivia for this film. That's fine. That's, that's just another example of why it's a pivotal film. I was indifferent to this movie when I first saw it. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, that's a movie. That exists. Um, I when upon watching it now, I almost couldn't get over like the um, commentariness of it. It almost didn't seem like a real movie. It seemed, um, seemed forced. It seems just like a big, huge fuck you to horror movies to people that like horror movies, um, and then everything. Not even just like the meta horror stuff about it, but you know. The idea that Billy Loomis talks openly about the lack of, of a motivation for the killings. Um, and then he gives him, he gives they, it her a, a motivation. A motive. You know, is it worth, do you have to kill all these people just to kill, you know, to make a point to um, Sydney. Sydney about, you know, your mom's whore. If you have any, if you have any opportunities, I just give you the title character yeah there you go i mean i didn't grow up in a small town but i didn't grow up in a huge town um did did people care this much about like the sex lives of people's moms no it was you know what i mean all of it's it's senseless it's so senseless and to the and even the the idea that it seems to be kind of trying to justify the movie through the commentary not so much about the motivation but about the idea that um you know all life's a movie that Billy is making all these references, you know, um, Sydney's putting, you know, when they're about to have sex and they're, you know, she's kind of throwing it out there. She's putting her, her emotions on the table and he goes, and he immediately goes to making a comparison to a movie. He's like, it's just like this movie. And she's like, well, this isn't a movie. And he's like, come on, Sid, the whole life's all life's a movie. But the interesting thing I think about this, at least speaking culturally, and I don't know if you saw this, like, as you went into high school or whatnot, but I don't know if so much of it is this movie are kind of like that kind of resurgence of like that meta tropes in, in film and 
wouldn't be for television for another like I think Arrested Development was kind of like the first one that kind of like really drove into that meta trope. Well, you can I mean you can make a Seinfeld argument, but we're not gonna. Or so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I didn't really watch the last Seinfeld. Not, not well, I mean, we're not talking about this. Anyway, we want to preserve this podcast for as long as we. But no, I'm just I'm just thinking I, I couldn't be an authority on that. But but you know, middle school and high school in the wake of this movie, to me especially felt like it. People did that like kind of I don't know if they're mirroring what they saw but they kind of compared everything to to fiction or to film and it's like this is like this movie yeah well I think it's a conversation that you know you could have about the culture now is where everyone filters everything through um, a kind of pop culture lens but I don't think that 100% makes everyone um, the same level of as as cynical and nihilistic as it makes literally every single human in Scream is just a massive piece of shit like no, but there's no yeah. nobody values any human life in Scream except for Henry Winkler, and he's about to stab Dewey. Dewey, kind of. Dewey, Dewey, a little bit. But even he's. I think the thing I think that I, I I think was the attempt there, and I don't think it's necessarily a well done attempt because I think Kevin Williamson is a clever writer, but not a really great writer. Is I think these are supposed to be quasi semi aware individuals who are still horror movie tropes stuck in a horror movie. So they can do nothing to escape those... The tropes. The cliches, but they know they're there. They know they're stuck in this. Yeah. So I, I agree with you on that, but I think it's mostly characters who realize the situation they're in, realize that they are horror movie characterizations, but are still stuck being those characters while knowing it and stuck inside this horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's tantamount, basically, the Satra's no exit. You know, there's a self-awareness, but an absurdity to it. And I just don't think Williamson was, you know, he's a clever writer, but not necessarily the best writer to do that. Um, Well, there's an anger to it that I kind of perceived, I think in this, I don't think I perceived it before, but I perceived it in this one. Towards the horror movie community or the film community at large, where Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson almost be saying you just don't fucking get it. So I'm going to stab a bunch of people until you understand mm. what the fuck I've been trying to do for 30 years or 20 years, like however long Wes Craven and had been making movies. Wes Craven had been doing, you know, clever subversions of horror for decades at that point. Last House on the Left is famously a Virgin Spring mm-hmm. adaptation. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Huh. It's a loose adaptation of Virgin Spring. Um, you know, Hills Have Eyes has a lot of kind of like attempts at social class warfare motifs in it. I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it successfully does it. I don't think Wes Craven, Wes Craven's a good director, but he's not a great director. And I think he's thought, he's well, a little, I, just, I think, I think Scream is a lot of clever people thinking they're really smart and doing a little overreaching a bit. Well, that's, and that's, a, and maybe their frustration of that. Right. And that's a perfect way to say it because I would say the exact same thing is that like, cause Kevin Williamson was a Gen Xer. But he's like throwing all these Gen Xers under the fucking bus well, by Kevin, saying like every Gen Xer is a piece of shit that doesn't give a shit about like if, you know, half the student population, if, you know, people are getting killed in their school and everyone's like, well, fuck that person or I'm glad that we don't have any school. Nobody seems to care about anything. Well, I think Kevin Williamson, a lot of his writing kind of hallmarks of it to the Brett Easton Ellis kind of mindset in that Gen X, that kind of paying no mind and absurdity to like the awfulness around you. That happens mm-hmm. a lot in like Dawson's Creek. I just don't want to get too much into like the writing of Kevin Williamson because I can. I've seen it all. I've seen it every season. But there's there's good. a lot of like horrific things that happen in that, and everyone handles it with like this really 
at arm's length distance. Right. Well, there's a start. There's like an ironic detachment from literally everything like, that's happening. And there's to a everybody. humor and nihilism in Dawson's Creek that just doesn't isn't appropriate at all. No, because it doesn't it doesn't fit the yeah, drama. Right. But I think that's that's what Williamson is. I think he saw a lot of things maybe going on in the world. And that, I mean, that's reaching. Um, but maybe he saw a lot going on in the media and wanted to make a point of that and kind of created. You know, Scream and then Dawson's Creek, which are kind of two more his personal projects, um, are kind of like the closest tight knit projects, the first projects he did. So, yeah, I can see that. And I think I could see your frustration with how it's done is the fact that it it is something that I think that could have been done much better. Yeah. And well, maybe with a lot more hubris. But maybe it can't be done better. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a fan of the movie, so you'd be able to tell, you'd have to tell me. There's, cl- there's a clear craftsmanship to the movie um from you know some of the shots to some of the deaths to um is there i don't know necessarily if i think there is there's cleverness i the casey's death is, is they're not great. cleverness like a craftsmanship no okay yeah cleverness and craftsmanship but casey's death is oh, but I it's th- melodramatic well, to me um, like looking at intellectually, I, like intellectually i don't think this movie holds up for me no 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 but um, i think melodramatic works in the sense that in she... In a teen horror, yeah. But especially with everything else that comes after Casey's death. There's a meanness to that, too, Drew though. Barrymore's death. Everything that comes after it... <clears throat> um, nobody... Like, so after she's dead, nobody cares. So the only person that yeah, cares... Yeah, they make that, jokes about it. The only person that cares that Casey's morning. dead is Casey and her parents. Um, and Hembry, to, to an extent, as you said. Right. Um, and they but make really. jokes about Hembry's death, too, later on. About right. him being strung up... On the goalpost. Oh, let's go see it before they take it down. Which I think is like there is there is that attempt to talk about the detachment of what should be real horror to like how they're perceiving it. Right, and I don't think any of those things are an example of. um, I think the Casey scene is is well done from a craftsman standpoint. It's very tense. Um, It's formulaic and cliched with the popcorn. Um, they're doing everything they can to add atmosphere to the movie or to the scene without actually having to add any atmosphere to the scene. So the one she's thing, like, oh, I'm going to make some pop- I'm going to talk to a stranger and tell them that I'm making popcorn. I'm going to watch some horror movies. At some point, the popcorn's going to burn. She's going to fill the house with smoke. And- but the one thing that's really, I think, smartly done there is it's all extremely well lit, which is ex- which was rare for horror at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they They didn't. There's like a little bit of darkness. Well, they told her to turn off lights, but it's not that dark. It's still like she's still wearing very vibrant whites. Her hair is still like that platinum blonde. Uh-huh. So like there was nice little like subtle subversions there. Well, so, that a horror scene told in light. But I think that's I, I think that's the point is that he is doing very cliched things, but he's doing really well. Mm. And I think it's in in scenes like that where um, when he's where he's kind of holding a mirror up to the horror genre and saying. Like putting all the cliched things in there that he knows he has to put in there, but elevating them into a um, a Gen X, you know, modern culture. Um, like he freaking says in a millennial film. It's a little weird. Dude. I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as a ten year old, it wasn't made for me. Way more people would have lived if it was a millennial film. Yeah. Um, and, they, and Matthew Lillard and Ski Ulrich wouldn't have <laughs> stabbed each other for so long. Um, all that stuff is all that scene is really well done. There's, I mean, then there's a couple of other scenes that you can point to too that are really well done. The camera work is is every scene, every shot is a 
is a good shot. Well, they did, and a, every shot serves every shot serves a purpose. And they did a really, really actually dangerous shot that and it's just an establishing shot when they show, um, like they just do an introduction of Woodsboro School and they follow Sydney. Yep. They actually had to do the long crane shot, then had the camera operator long crane steady shot, and had the camera operator without looking step off and walk into the shot like a single oh, wow. take, which was extremely dangerous. But I'm even thinking of something like when. Sydney is talking to Tatum on the phone about how her dad is leaving and can she sleep over the house. Um, they have Sydney kind of walk around the outside of the house on her really expansive deck mm. and up some, you know, um, ornately designed, you know, deck staircase that runs up the side of the house and like you don't even really know where she ends up. She's on like a second Neil's, floor or something. Neil's doing well. He's, Neil's doing fantastic. That That view is something else. But stuff like that where it's, a lesser director would have focused on the really attractive girl that he had chosen to play this part. But Wes Craven being a, a master horror director is like, I got to show that this, I got to show that there's some space here. I got to show a relation between Casey's house and Sydney's house and that it's not escape is not going to be as easy, but also, but escape is not going to be as easy as just kind of like running out the front door or, the killer is going to have way more opportunities to get into the house than just through the front door or breaking through a window. There needs to be this kind of sense of impending doom from every angle, mm-hmm. um, which I think he's really, which I think he's really good at setting up. So even when Sydney's like, "Oh, that's so stupid," the girl always runs up the stairs, and she should be running out the door, and inevitably she ends up running up some stairs because the door is blocked. The door is blocked, but they've set it up. That there's all these different entrances and exits and stuff, and you're just like, oh, where's it gonna come from? You know, um, I think this movie spaces itself well. It gives you yeah. a lot of, it gives you a lot of building into in, the horror scenes, especially that third act. That third act kind of it's it, the build to it short, but it does a lot in establishing Stumacher's house about where all the entrances and exits are. So you always have a sense of place, right? Which is essential in, in horror films. Absolutely, Halloween's a hallmark of establishing place. So I mean, I think one of the things that bugs me about this movie is that it does these these action scenes what would you is there a term for yeah, them in the horror action. thing the action scenes it does these action scenes really well and it seems Chase to sequences. do everything else in the douchiest possible way before people were calling people douchebags like Wes Craven decided to be a huge douchebag when he wasn't shooting like an action movie and I'd agree um, I think two scenes that really falter the film or the fountain sequence. They're making jokes about Casey's death. Yeah, and then yeah later yeah. on the um, the video store sequence. Okay. When um, they you know they're talking about Billy being the killer, but I, it's, it's weird because I think at the same time they maybe are just stand in the time of how people were reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still kind of like this this escapism to movies, so it didn't feel as tangentially real. Mm-hmm. Uh, there didn't feel like we talked about a few episodes ago, kind of like the responsibility to like speak to the realness of it. They, people could still make these jokes. Yeah. Cause I, I just remember, you know, having watched that, you know, and, and just from reading reviews of it, there doesn't seem to be too much of a, of a focus on like how awful these people are being and seeing it now through the lens of history. It's like, why are they acting like this? Right. Which was, I mean, which is, I think not my problem. Then my problem then was that I didn't care. My problem now is more of a moral one, oh, in the sense that, like, why doesn't anybody give a shit about anything? It absolutely is a '90s movie. Like, oh, it's I so, wrote that there yeah. is like 
revels in its error is what i said like it huh. is there that's is good one. nothing about this movie that makes it timeless and like that's one of the reasons i couldn't say like it's it's a much more pivotal movie or it's it's a movie that rises above what it is it just does what it's meant to do um but you know looking at if i had seen this movie for the first time now i'd be like oh the whodunit part's fine but having seen it in the time when it was made when you had those expectations and when characters acting like douchey was just like oh they're making jokes that's pretty inappropriate but you know it's a movie whatever Mm -hmm. you you didn't feel like this earnestness to have that honesty i think it worked well i think you can have this conversation about i think some of the movies that came out in people always make this claim about um the tv show portlandia and then it's people have been writing articles about now that Portlandia is over. It ended. It's yeah, they're not making any more episodes. No. Um, that it was the most stereotypically Obama show, because you didn't feel like when Obama was president, you didn't feel like you had to care about anything. So you could care about the stupid. You can make these jokes about liberalism, about stupid things that people do. You know what I mean? Yeah. About like you know going to coffee shops or joining a ba- like a baseball team or you know whether to drink raw milk or you know pasteurized milk and that's those are the things that you could really care about when you didn't have to worry about you know your democracy collapsing about three-year-olds dying in cages right and i think real <laughs> i think that's something that this movie kind of deals with as well but perhaps not as overtly but maybe because i don't remember the political what the political discourse was in 1995 1996 where you could have if you were a teenager then, your focus is solely on yourself because, you know, it was 0% unemployment or whatever it was. And, you know, the the internet boom was happening. Well, I definitely think this know, was a this movie. Was things you had to, you only had to care about, um, you know, going to a party or watching movies or having no school because you didn't have to care about anything else. And I don't think this is a movie that can get made in the same way in 2000. No. Well, I mean, I so last week when I saw, you know, we talked about Little Stranger last week, and one of the previews was for um, Assassination Nation. Oh, my God, yeah. Fuck what the that. fuck fuck is that, that movie? movie? What is that supposed to be? Yeah. But I feel like there's a lot of... It was interesting having watched this this week and seen that preview last week in the sense that they seem to be tying some kind of weird base morality or some base social justice theme to the idea of like oh everyone can see everything on your phone so obviously it's going to degenerate into people killing people yeah so instead of the nihilism isn't nihilism anymore because it's justified by this kind of intrusion of privacy whereas in 1996 they didn't have to justify that stuff they were just like we're gonna we're just killing you we're not to say it didn't matter but it just didn't well, there was no. It didn't have to earn itself. There was no larger social theme. So if you look at even something like The Purge, you know, and I'm I'm going to take out like all those kind of um, genre, like very genre horror movies. So this is a slasher movie. It's not a horror movie. It's not like you know Annabelle or The Conjuring or something no, like that. No, it's um, it's a more modern. It's a man, men, yeah. stabbing other men right. and women. Um, everything now is is framed around this larger you know, social ideal or some kind of morality comment. Mm. And in Scream, it wasn't about morality. It was about, you don't understand my movies. Yeah. And I'm, making, so, yeah. I'm making a big movie that 
hopefully people will be think is really popular. I'm going to cast it with it actors just to say you don't understand my movies, which is not going to happen anymore. No, I mean I think he did a I think he did a shitty job, except for his use of the Nick Cave song. I thought was pretty good. Um, well, he did also say the scenes were well framed and right, 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 right. But like in terms of like um, expressing that the cultural yeah the I mean, cultural idea i mean i, I think it's I, I just don't think i i think ultimately it's just it was a movie made for a certain type of audience necessary i mean it, it hit a lot of people um it did it made a lot of i mean it, it was a cultural phenomenon yeah it was just it's it's weird because like as some, like as somebody who does not like horror and our slasher especially like they would never have been a movie you would have given a shit about no, but I wonder if it's it's interesting, like in the wake of like Kurt Cobain's suicide, in the rise of of you know '90s alt rock, um, you know, there's no rap in this isn't in this movie at all. There's no hip hop. There's no, um, which there's they could have barely any black people <laughs> at all. Maybe one, a couple of the reporters, right? Maybe in the background students. Um, yeah, it's a very whitewashed movie. Which I again, and I think it's one of the problems. In, I, I think I mean, it is supposed in, to be in certain movies. You can say, "Oh, wine it's, country, Northern California." But in but, certain movies, you can have like, "Oh, this is worthy of discussion because maybe he's trying to make some larger point." I'm not sure. But he's no, trying to make no, a larger God, point. no, no, he was not at all. Because the sequel definitely had rap. It's just an expression of it. It's it's a microcosm. It's it's yeah. like I said. It's it's Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson aren't making trying to make any sort of bigger points. They're trying to do a deconstruction not socially of anyway yeah no, they're trying to make not. a larger a deconstruction of a points, little yeah. microcosm thing they know and you know to me it, it spoke to me in a lot of levels sure 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 Just like a lot of levels um you know that's why it's on my list but there's i would i would agree with you that it doesn't work now it it didn't necessarily even work of its time has in terms of a great film it's a eminently entertaining movie to me even still i was mm-hmm. able to watch it twice in the past week and enjoy it i can quote the entire screenplay but just because it it speaks to me in that small little world mm-hmm. but still a movie i can appreciate isn't the best of well films. it's a defining it's a it defined something for you as a as a movie watcher and as a as a consumer of of culture that infiltrated like how your personality was then built like from that moment forward yeah um so 100% has to be on your list. list. It could be number one on your list if you wanted it to. But yeah, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to say that it wasn't a better, you know. It's hard to be, there, put, there's it's a lot, be hard to put it number one and be like, well, I wish it was better. Yeah. But no, it's, exactly. my, it's my number one, but it's just, you know. But as of now, it's my number 92. And when we come back, I'll have Tom's number 92. All right, so we're back. Um, while we were having that conversation, we finished our beer. We did the Trailblazer, and the last sip is um, it, a I rough feel, sip. We feel the roughness, the ABV burn, as it were. So my suggestion, uh, if you get a Trailblazer, and it's a good beer, it is a good beer, it's yeah, a yeah, very yeah. enjoyable beer. Um, strong though. I we've only had I've only had one, and I'm definitely feeling yeah. it. Uh, mix it up a bit in your hand, tumble it a bit back and forth, tap that can on the top, then yep. pop it open. Hopefully we're well. You know we'll probably finish these near the end of this discussion. We'll let you know if it has anything. If it changes, we'll let you know if it, our if it last fixes sip. anything. But Tom, um, 
So my 92 is Martin Scorsese's 1990 film Goodfellas. Starring Ray Liotta as Henry Hill. Robert De Niro as Jimmy Conway. Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito. Lorraine Bracco as Henry's wife Karen. And yeah, a really, host of other... We really got to make sure that Lorraine Bracco's subjugated as her... Has the the wife just just to make sure we as everyone give women, so everyone understands just, just so we know women's place in this fucking film. Well, we're gonna have that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna be quiet for a bit. Okay, I don't have a lot like Fargo. I don't have um, a strong autobiographical tie to it. I don't remember if I saw it after having seen Raging Bull in um, high school. I don't remember if I saw it after seeing The Aviator which was the first Martin Scorsese movie that I felt really um, personally attached to, not from a craft perspective and not being in awe of it as as a film, but just a, a movie that I saw on my own that I kind of loved. Um, I saw it at some point, though, and it's another one of those movies, like, like I said, just like Fargo, that once you see it, at least for me, you can't unsee it, and you start to compare things to it and you start to make, um, you know, it kind of defines how you think about certain aspects of film and what you like and what you don't like and what moves you and what, you know, what gets you off and, you know, what repulses you. I think this is a perfect, Mario made a face. I think this is a perfect movie to have that conversation. I think if you... Or no, say it gets you off. <laughs> I get you up, like I said, it's the perfect movie to say it gets me off. So. It doesn't get me off, but if you look at like... But to use that term, this is the perfect movie for that. I think it is, because if you... I mean, even if... You know, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews today. Just the top critics. I don't, anyone that's not a top critic, I don't have any time for you. Um, Take that, Jeremy John. <laughs> is he a person? He's a YouTube guy. Okay. Um, the reviews are universally good, except for a couple here or there. Um, but they all have something different to say about it. They all respond... Every reviewer responds to something very specific in it. Um... What I responded to it, which makes me think that I, I definitely saw it after Raging Bull, is um, the craft of it. I have I actually think this is one of the most fun movies on my list. Uh, Mario was 100% going to disagree with me, I'm sure. But it all revolves around um, Martin Scorsese's ability to tell the story in the exact way he wants to. And it's... Stuff like, um, you know, the quick zooms, it's the tracking shots, the just phenomenal tracking shots, which you can talk about later. It's the use of stills in this movie. Like, what movie was using stills in the middle of movies? Just stopping a movie. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So between Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Goodfellas, what movies were using I'm just, stills? I'm just bringing up Texas Chainsaw Massacre every time I can. But I mean, reason. like, so when I was re-watching this movie to make this list, and there was no question that Goodfellas was going to be on my list, when I was watching this movie to make my list, I found that, like, the stills were more exciting, almost, than the movie. Well, one of the most famous, all... like, current memes is Ray Liotta's laughing face during the, uh, do I muse you sequence. Right, but that's, so, like... The brilliant part of the, I mean, the, of the use of stills, I think, in this movie is the idea that it's not scenes like that. But the actual it's, stills. It's scenes like, it just, the camera just stops. So it's just him and Jimmy walking down the street. And then the camera stops, 
and you have a Henry Hill narration, and they cut to something else, and they come back, or it's young Henry running away from a bunch of exploding cars, talking about how um, a bunch of kids carried his mother's groceries home. But the background is Henry just breaking a bunch of windows, igniting the cars on fire, and running away. And that's the background. There's a real... It's almost kind of like... Remember in chemistry class when you learned... I think it was chemistry. When you learned about like the difference between like kinetic energy and like potential energy? Is that yeah, it'd be word? like a physics and our, our chemistry. Okay. So in the idea that like, you know, kinetic energy is moving, but like potential energy is like... It's just like this unmoving energy that's going to at some point go somewhere. It's going to burst forth at some point and become a different kind of energy. And that's what like the stills kind of have always been for me. Every time that camera stops, every time the movie stops to focus on a thing, I'm just like, I'm all revved up for whatever they've got to do next. And a lot of times it's not even anything very interesting. But it seems way more interesting than it would in a normal movie where they would just let that stuff run. Or they would put a, you know, a really portentous score behind it. And he doesn't do any of that stuff. And I think that's why one of the reasons why this movie gets a kind of reputation for glamorizing um, the mafia and the mob is that it's so much fun. And, uh, you know, the, the score, the soundtrack is responsible for that. Um, the energy is responsible for that. The jokes are responsible for that. You know, you just already referenced the famous um, Tommy scene, you know, played by Joe Pesci, where he's, you know, do I amuse you? Am I a clown? How am I funny? Scene, um, which is really funny. And he tells a bunch of stories that are just equally as funny. There's a lot of funny things in this movie. But inevitably, at the end of every funny scene, somebody gets killed. Or somebody gets, you know, their head split open with a wine bottle. Or somebody gets, you know, their face stomped in for like a minute and a, a, minute and a half. Where they're not cutting away. Where he's just lingering on it. Um, and maybe I shouldn't find that as fun as I do, but I find it thrilling. In the same way that I think some people find action movies thrilling, I find, you know, Karen and Henry huddled together after Henry can't find the drugs that Karen has flushed down the toilet after she's bailed him out of jail to be just like a thrilling piece of filmmaking. Oh, that's that's the best sequence in the film for me which one is the scene where he's henry's in the fetal position on the ground just crying yeah that's, that's the, <laughs> the well, only, I, only scene i like in this movie. really you think so i mean it's a great scene man but i think and it's one of the things that like i would i'll talk about later when i talk about um the aviator um or we in which we may talk about when we talk about the departed um is that kind of use of the medium shot where like i think a lesser director or a different director would have either, you know, panned away, perhaps, or pulled in. So yeah, you get the emotion on the faces. Tight, yeah. But Scorsese just does the medium yeah. shot, and it's you just see everything. Yeah. So when he's, you know, or after. And a weirdly framed medium shot, which is nice, too, because it makes it more jarring. Well, he always does those weirdly framed, and especially in this movie, in a lot between Henry and He uses Karen. the lens to convey emotion. Which is another interesting thing, and uh, something I didn't even realize until I watched this movie again to do this thing, is that he, um, I think in a lot of the same ways that we talked about last week with um, Dom Gleason and The Little Stranger, is that so he, long ago. He, lets his, um, he lets his actors carry a lot of weight here. So there's no signature, there's no, s- you know if you talk about the great directors, 
inevitably in one of their movies there's going to be a shot that kind of, I don't you know whether it's um, a, a Scorsese favorite in like Truffaut and like the end of the 400 blows or even like someone like Tarkovsky or someone like Fellini there's going to be a shot that kind of takes or you know Herzog even um, that kind of takes your breath away you know what I mean it's going to you know and you're going to puzzle over the composition and you're going to marvel at the cinematography um there isn't any of those things here. Those don't exist in Goodfell in the Goodfellas world. There's no signature shots in this movie. I think the most signature shot in this movie is at the very beginning of the movie when they show the back of the Buick before they kill Billy Betts. Um, that's the only shot you get. That seems like it's a composed, you know, a well composed, well lit shot that's supposed to mean something beyond it's pulling in. There's weird colors. Um, the reflection of the cars, the taillights. the taillights are reflecting off whatever the color of the car is, and it's creating all these, you know, greens and purples and things, and the smoke coming out of the tailpipe, and it's just a slow, a slow pull in, kind of signifying, you know, every terrible thing that's going to happen to them, you know, Jimmy, Tommy, and Henry after they kill him. Um, but other than that, it's just it's an active movie. It's so active. There's so much happening all the time. And even, you know, the camera's just floating around. Like Even when they're showing, um, after the big heist, um, when they're showing all the, de- when Jimmy's getting paranoid and, he, you know, Henry's doing the narration, he's saying, oh, you know, the people involved in the heist are just show their bodies are showing up everywhere for months afterwards. Uh, it's not just like he's showing a dead body. Um, there's a pop song playing in the background and the camera just floats. And then it seems like when they find um, one of the guys in the back of a meat truck, it almost seems like the guys are opening the door for the camera. No, yeah, that definitely there's like a pull in and on that. Him. But that's the whole. I mean, that's the whole movie. I mean, people always focus on the tracking shots, like the two classic tracking shots. Um, you know, working through the clubs and stuff like that. Um, but the the camera never stops moving. The camera is always moving, and it's unless it's lingering on some really uncomfortable violence, usually between Henry and Karen. Um, and that that shit is, I just love it. I just I I love this movie because of that stuff. Um, I don't know. I think it's it's a mob movie. I don't love mob stuff. The Godfather's obviously not on my list. It's not on your list. I don't think. I thought The Sopranos was a stupid show. Fuck this. I fucking hate that show. Um, but neither of those movies is like this movie. Neither of those movies take the chances. Neither of those pieces of, uh, of film and television take the chances and make the statement that this movie makes. Period. Go. It's an exceedingly unpleasant, ugly chore of an experience to get through. And I hate it with every... <laughs> Single fiber of my being. Every, everyone? Every not, every, not, not every Not every fiber. But there might be a loose fiber here or there. Loose fiber here and there. Extraordinarily well acted to get that out. Um, ex- exclusions to Ray Liotta, who I, is not that good in this. No, he's, he's, he's well there's, cast at times, and then at other times he's just not... There's a play. The, there's the there's mind. there's there's a lot of arguments in the criticism about this film, and that his laugh is meant to be unpleasant, and I just don't think it was. I think it's just he's just bad. at Well, that. he's got a cocaine laugh through the whole movie. 
But like but even he's not before doing, he's that's doing what I'm cocaine. Saying. But even before he even dabbles in that stuff, he's like got this weird antic, uncomfortable laugh. But no, like so, De Niro's doing some of his better work in this. Pesci's, which we'll, I want to talk about that. De Niro, Pesci yeah. well deserved his Oscar. Sure. Uh, Bracco is great. I, her character is not given any sort of agency or for for what her character is meant to extol and and go through and the world she's meant to inhabit she does brilliantly and very realistically Mm -hmm. we'll talk talk about that later too but holy shit i cannot express how all the kinetic energy you, you say comes through to me in a way that feels ugly and unsanitary and dirty. Mm-hmm. And there's some intention there. I'm never going to say that it was... It's it's definitely a well-made film in terms of its shot composition, its blocking. Mm-hmm. Um, Scorsese's 100% trying to make the point that to extol the reasons why individuals would kind of pursue this sort of life and then bring it down. That everything hinges on that shot of Henry Coward in the corner, crying mm-hmm. and broken in the fetal position. All of this has that New York Post article from a few years ago. It says, like, Goodfellas is not a, a movie made for women. It says everything's about ball-busting masculinity. I think they say ball-busting, like, 150 times. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, because it's a fucking New York Post. Um, and that's why that's my favorite shot in the film, is just, like, that's the one time that peels it back. But everything else in this film despite his attempts to show this as not a glorious lifestyle, glamorizes that life. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't in the finale with any sort of conviction do that. Mm -hmm. He never presents in any way a counterbalance. Yeah. And it's just, it's such an ugly, unpleasant movie to watch in that I don't like anybody in this film repulses me in every <laughs> part of my moral fiber i dislike i hate to use the word like the toxic masculinity yeah, or yeah the removal of agency of women but this movie does that in every way and then presents you with an anti-hero who's just a child henry hill's a child in this oh yeah and but it doesn't it doesn't really try to earn the fact that that's what's happening it just doesn't well i don't do know that. because I watched this twice in the last year, and it actually seems like he's making the case very early on in the film that there actually isn't anything redeeming about this lifestyle. In the sense that he's showing very clearly, clearly but subtly, I don't know if those two things reconcile with each other, but clearly but subtly, that everyone in this world is only out for themselves. So where Henry perceives that it's a it's a unit, and it is a a family it's an organization it's a group of people that that take care of each other when he's you know talking about oh that's what people don't understand where they all they got from paulie was protection from other guys looking to rip them off and that's what it's all about that's what the fbi could never understand that what paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops that's it that's all it is they're like the police department for wise guys while that's happening they're robbing trucks they're not protecting anybody it's so when we were talking about like a little bit earlier off um off mic 
about the idea of an unreliable narrator, I don't know if he's unreliable as much as he just doesn't understand. He's idealized it in his own head that this is what it looks like or this is what it is. But as viewers, we can see fairly clearly, well, that's not what's happening here. But see, my argument with that is that Polly's kind of shown as, yeah, he's robbing trucks. But, and Henry says that, you know, the truck drivers were okay with it. They, they were in on it. And I would agree with you on the unreliable narrator in the sense of him being skewed in his vision of that. But then the screen presents you with, like, these guys kind of laughing, the truck drivers being kind of okay with it, them getting, like, threatened loosely by Jimmy, but and then the $50 being tucked into the wallet, and then, like, kind of, like, the the, the expression changing to one of, like, oh, yeah, this is how it happens. Well, so, I mean, if I would, and I would take umbrage with any reviewer that says that this... Um, makes the mafia look good or glamorizes being in the mafia because I think even though that stuff is happening I don't think it's actually I think Scorsese is counting on the fact that his viewers have some kind of moral compass and they're going to understand fairly quickly that what is happening here isn't like a good thing and I think it, I think that's where the distinction comes between something like this and the Godfather which is another conversation we've had off mic but the idea that kind of that there's a nobility and like a samurai code to godfather which is they think they're enacting here which was which doesn't actually exist is that they will literally that jimmy will literally order the death of anybody he thinks that's going to turn on him or get in the way of his whatever freedom he thinks he has but my and problem which is with that not is- no and he's like family 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 you know, um, we're all in this together, blah, blah, blah. But it's obvious. If there was a, a better word for something being obvious or more strong word for being obvious, I would use it. Inherent. It's inherent. It's inherent in everything we see on screen that that is not the case. And I would at agree. all. Jimmy and, and Tommy are definitively presented as psychopaths, unhinged, unnerved. In different ways, though. Yeah, no. Tommy has a, a serious complex in the fact that he, he has an inferiority complex, he needs to feel like he's constantly defending his pride, whereas Jimmy's completely undone by his paranoia. And, that, and by his parano- and sense of the possible, the possible unknown. Well, and the fact that he can't be, he can't ever be a made guy. Mm. So he has to, and they, they talk a lot about the Paulie, um, played by Paul Sorvino, um, who I think is actually really excellent in this movie. Um, and I'm kind of sad doesn't get more recognized. Um, says a lot of times that like Jimmy's a good earner, like it's one of the things that they talk a lot about Jimmy. Is I like oh he's a good earner, he's a good earner, he's a good earner, and I feel like Jimmy feels because he can't be made, he feels like he always has to be earning, like constantly. And if he's in jail or he's dead, then he can't be. I think Jimmy and Henry are kind of the same. They want the same things. They want to be recognized in a way that they can never actually be recognized because they're Irish. Yeah. Um, my, but my, just to get back to my point, my point is I don't necessarily ever see Polly being presented in the same sort of light. He's shown as definitely a selfish person. The fact that, you know, Henry says like $3,500 is all is worth in the end. Like that's what a lifetime of work is. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, Henry's already proven himself to be a fucking piece of garbage, so I don't understand why an audience should feel like he deserves more. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really explicitly shown that says that, like, Polly's doing anything terrible to the neighborhood. It, it, no, the only thing he's doing terrible to the neighborhood is is instituting 
the organization that allows Tommy and Jimmy and Henry and all those other guys to operate in the way that they operate. Exactly. But there is no... And I, that's my problem. My problem... I, I come at this movie from a completely different angle in, in the fact that I, I come at it from the way it's been kind of interpreted and the way I think feel a lot of people... Sure, sure, sure. The way it's infested our culture. Oh, yeah. I agree. And this is my, yeah. this is my issue. I guess, I guess I, I'm being a little unfair to this film. In the sense that if I see this as a movie by itself, I, I think the biggest issue I have with this is the fact that it's unseatingly, we both can agree that it's an unpleasant experience, that these are uh-huh. toxic individuals. Oh, God, yeah. The, the closest thing we get to a, a, a anti-hero is Henry, who's an abusive piece of shit, a, a, a rampant drug user. Um which, you know, not necessarily that that's a definition of character, but in the sense of that he's proliferating the drug trade for money. He's abusing women. He is just not a good person. He's, he's complicit in multiple murders. Oh, he's, yeah, um, he's terrible. And Scorsese attempts to show this light in the sense that, like, you know, the way the makeup effects are done, the way the lighting effects are done throughout the film kind of, like, ruins Ray Liotta. To take him from like oh, a made-up yeah. Ray Liotta to what Ray Liotta probably looks like in everyday life. <laughs> um, but then you look at some of the critical analysis of this film, and you look at some of the the way that film's been taken in the popular culture. There's a popular restaurant in the hey, town of yeah. New Haven called Goodfellas, mm-hmm. which on a constant circuit plays the movie Goodfellas and presents itself as like this Italian restaurant that kind of like says like, oh, this is kind of like a place for like the maid sort of men. And that's like the gimmick of the restaurant. Mm. And the fact that like, just the fact that the culture around this film and and the ideas around this film have been used to kind of glamorize that lifestyle. that like, it feels like so many people just didn't get it. Uh Make me think that ultimately this film was a failing. Well, I think The Sopranos is actually evidence of the cultural failing of of this movie. Yeah. In the sense that it didn't take the fact that Tony Soprano is not abusing his wife when clearly he would be. Well, it's everything. I think the thing that Scorsese is showing in this movie is that the world is so insular that in reality, the stakes are really low. In reality, like it, societally, the stakes are really low. It's just whether or not X, Y, and Z person is in jail, whether or not X, Y, and Z person is alive. Um, but from a subjective perception of Henry, it's the most important thing in the world. Mm. Um, I think the problem is with, I think to illustrate the point that you're saying is that everything that came after this, you had people in the culture saying like, yeah, that's the most important thing in the world. And then like the Sopranos is like the, you know, um, encapsulating idea around the fact that Anything that the mob does is in any way significant to anybody other than the people it's harassing and robbing from and killing, which is usually just themselves. And it's not. It's not significant in any way. Where Scorsese was being true and where he was being honest is saying, like, none of this stuff matters to anybody except for these people. Um the culture and so, the culture and then subsequently the sopranos were saying like no no that's not true this speaks to a larger idea in the culture about like how 
you know, how things work and how we operate as people. And, you know, it, it acts as a kind of microcosm of modern society. And I don't think it does. And I don't think Scorsese is saying that. But I, see my, I guess my real pushback to that, too, is the fact that this is based on real circumstances, like real history. And it, it, I, we talked once again a few weeks ago about viewer responsibility. And maybe this is an instance where I'm going to argue for artist responsibility. There, there's so much kind of still whitewashing on the history of Henry Hill <laughs> in terms of like making him slightly See, a more redeeming character. Like there's famous infamous stories of how he like would like threaten the life of his children with an ax. Yeah. And like they take that out and I don't, I don't think it's responsible as an I, artist knowing what is actually happening in the world in this story and knowing what the fuck these kind of people did. And it's kind of like brushing it off to like create this film. I don't, like that's why I like the something we, like the Pardon more because like it's it's still kind of like a fictionalized tale of that. Well, and it's more campy. Yeah. So I mean, and that's kind of where I would I would turn to. I actually think this is a really good. I mean, like we've mentioned a lot of times that this happens a lot, where our movies seem to link up fairly well. In a sense, I think there's a little bit of irony going on here. There's a little bit of satire going on, whereas whereas yes, Henry is not shown threatening his children with an axe, but he is shown putting his children in a position. To be standing next to their mother while she yells um, to Henry's mistress through the intercom of their oh, apartment yes, building yes. that they're that she's a whore. Um, there's, I mean, I think one of the things I think one of the reasons I find this movie so thrilling is 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 that use of irony. Like the tracking shots are so like you know we always make fun of we always make fun of atonement. For the tracking shot, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. We always are mocking Atonement for the tracking shot. I think it's one of the things about this movie is that I don't, think when, I don't think when he's doing, I don't think when Scorsese is doing either of the tracking shots, either you know the uh, the first one through the original club that him and Tommy burned down, or um, the second one through the you know the the kitchen of the Copa, uh, which is a, a great fucking shot that we can talk about. Um, I don't think he's saying like, oh, this is a great life. I don't think he's saying like, oh, you should all aspire to like live this way. I think he's saying, look how stupid this is. Look how dumb this is. This guy is nothing. And I think that's where, I mean, so in a lot of ways, in something I didn't mention in, in uh, Fargo, and we talked about Fargo last week, but I don't mention here because we don't have to re-talk about it um, at all. So I think the people that people, the characters that people focus on the most when they're talking about these movies are actually not the key figures in the movie. I actually think Karen is the key figure in this movie in the sense that Henry's choice to join Polly's organization, family, crew, whatever is you're not more sympathetic to it, but you understand it better. The idea that he's getting his house is, you know, he's looking across the street every day at these guys that don't have a fucking care in the world. And Henry has all the cares in the world. And the idea that he would say, he would look at his own life and say, this versus that, I want that. Mm. Where Karen is saying, I don't want to live here. I'm rejecting the stereotypical Jewish, you know, family life that is, is being portrayed in the movie. You know, where the mother's just, you know, nagging on how people are eating and that they're staying out too late and they're not... Um, fulfilling some kind of weird not stereotypical Jewish, familiar... but it's very like. I mean, but it is it's presented but... in the film as that, but like right. stereotypical kind of like helicopter sure, sure, sure. controlling parents. But I'm saying how it's portrayed in the film, and that yeah. she's saying she's which I mean, well, I'm just I'm just bringing it up because like there, I think there's just a lot of 
things that are done sure, like sure, that, sure. that are pretty problematic. Well, and that's in the same way as Scream. 1990 was a much different time than 2018. Yeah. So you're right. Um, the idea that she would choose the safety of family, albeit with a nagging mother, over, over that she would choose the life of a gangster's wife is... And what happens to her, I think, is kind of the moral backbone of the movie. As that she's... That's where you see it. That's where you see the loss. You don't see it in someone who's delusional like Henry. You see it in someone like... Who's Karen, been lied to. Who's been lied to, but who's also lying to himself. Like, when, at the end of that movie, when he gets up off the... When, you know, he breaks the fourth wall and he's talking directly to the camera... When he's no, on the she's been. Li- no, I'm saying she's. Oh been yeah, lied she's to. been lied to, but she also knows exactly what's going on. But at the, I'd say around the wedding, she knows what's going on. I but doesn't make. I'm, I'm talking about the end of the movie when they're talking to the FBI mm. agent, and Henry is really. You know that Henry's thinking about everything that he's lost from a materialistic myth standpoint, and she's lost her, parents. and she's lost her parents, and so I think that's where, and I think, but I think I, I see think part my of the problem is, is that it's perhaps it's too subtle. And she's still, yeah, and that's the thing. I think from a more obvious perspective, she's presented as just a nag. But she and doesn't, I, because she says the whole time. But is it too subtle? Like, we know that's what's being going on no, there. I don't, and I don't know if it's too subtle, because the only way that I think it'd be too subtle is that her voiceover gets lost inside of his voiceover, or her voiceover gets lost inside of his narrative. But he gives her, like, he does, or says he's smart in giving her the voiceover. She's the only other character who gets a voiceover. Right. But... It, it does get lost in his. In the I think it of, does. I think that she doesn't get enough of it. I think she should have more of it. All of her voiceovers are based around the fact of how much she loves him and like how much her life didn't mean anything well, until that's, she met so that's, him. And that's, I think, one of the flaws in the movie is that I think really what Scorsese seems to be wanting to set up is the idea that Karen is very... Conf- where Henry is less conflicted, where, he- where Henry is not conflicted, Karen is very conflicted. She's, She's like, I understand everything horrible that's happening. Emotionally destroyed. But I can't thing. seem to break myself from the idea that I can have anything I want and that I'm protected and like all this other stuff. He doesn't give her enough the opportunities fact that, like, to have that conversation. done a bunch of gaslighting of her, her entire life. Well, that's the thing that the voiceover. But that's the thing that I think that the voiceovers establishes that he's not one hundred percent gaslighting her. That she is aware of what's happening, but because of all the things that it offers. But he is gaslighting her because he but says he's not. you're crazy. When but I, she never, whenever she mentions like she the affairs, it only is gaslighting if she thinks she's crazy. She never thinks she's crazy. She always knows what's happening, but she says, "I still can't. I still can't tear myself away from all of the other things that this offers me." Is that she understands that he's, what he's doing, what he's doing to their she family. Only, ultimately, all she cares about is him, though, which is weird because I don't feel that's also earned. But that's the but no that but that's the point of that last scene of her of her in the movies that it's not all she cares about. Because now that she she's, wants to, she wants to maintain some kind of she wants to maintain some kind of connection to her family. Yeah, because she doesn't like... And then when she's like, "What am I going to do? Can I ever talk to my family again?" And the FBI agent's like, "Well, maybe if they're sick." But listen, if you if you stay and he goes, you're the only connection you're to him. Murdered. You're gonna you you and your kids are gonna die. And then she makes a decision for him to go into hiding to protect him also, but also their children. So she's going. She's got her eyes. Her eyes are clouded, but they're open. She can see both sides of this coin, where he can only ever see the idea that like, oh, I was getting, you know. 
complimentary bottles of wine from the anonymous Italians that were sitting across from me at the Henny Youngman show. Or, uh, you know, I wanted a suit and I could get a suit. I wanted to eat a steak in prison so I could eat a steak in prison. Um, She's dealing with actual, actual life and death. And he's dealing, he's playing around. He's dealing with the myth. He's trying to encourage, he's trying to hold on to the myth of, of what his life meant. When she is showing him, you know, again, probably too subtly, that his that life that he thinks is so great was really was really nothing. Yeah, because that that's my problem. Is like you have to dig for all this. Like the fact that you have like critical reviews twenty five years in the future, like that New Republic review by Noah Berlatsky, who says like Goodfellow shows the ugly, stupid humility and consequences of manliness, but has nothing to offer in its place. And it's like. I think I do think you're right. I don't think it's well presented. I think it's presented far too subtly. I think it's presented in this veil of Henry Hill being the central piece of her story. I would love to see a 2018 version of this movie with her being. I mean, we see some of that in Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, Margaret yeah. Robbie's character has a lot more agency in that. And he's and he is well, that's clearly the thing. I think, a, I think, he is clearly presented as a fuck up. Yeah. And and like she has a bit of con- she has a bit of control and agency, and she knows how to like sell herself to mm-hmm. control the path that she's going to take. And that's the problem. I, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, there's a, a historical aspect to this film where you're seeing it through a lens. But maybe in the example of something like a screen we talked about, or some other films, we, especially, I think this is the first film we've discussed where it has. You know that's been on one of our lists. Whereas historical implications, it exists in its time period, and were that it, and were it presented things in in problematic, weird ways, I'd be fine with it. And to yeah. like, oh, I could hand wash that. But the fact that it's still so prevalent and still used as such like a like a tent pole in the arguments of of people today to like kind of like lift up that lifestyle or kind of like look at that lifestyle in such glamorization kind of shows like. This is maybe this is maybe to ha- to bring back the conversation we had two weeks ago. Maybe the time where I feel the kind of viewer responsibility to push away a movie. Right. Well, and I can see that too in a movie that we're going to talk about much later in Raging Bull. Um, and he does a much better job of presenting, um, or, or of giving Kathy Moriarty that kind of agency to defend herself. And to make decisions for herself. Which is weird, because that movie pres- is 10 years before this. 10 years this? before it. And he's given her an opportunity, in not just in her character, but in his filmmaking, to establish the differences, the, the moral differences, the psychological differences between um, De Niro's character and, and uh, Moriarty's character. Where he's not actually given... A, a similarly strong distinction between Henry, uh, between Ray Liotta's character and between Lorraine Bracco's character. And I think Lorraine Bracco is, I think Lorraine Bracco is very good. And I think she was up She's, to a bigger, I think she was up to a more complicated role in this film. The fact that she's able to do a lot with such a shallow role speaks volumes to what she was capable right. of doing. Um, and that, that's also a problem too. It's just like, it feels like looking at Scorsese's filmography leading up to this and the, decades leading up to this he was able to establish more strongly the unreliable narrator you know that travis bickle you know and we could say how much of well, that is um uh, paul schrader and how much of that is is 
as Scorsese, uh, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ. He's able to do all this in, in the years leading up to it, mean streets of building characters who are unreliable and then building multiple voices and, and, and stating a story. And, and Goodfellas seems to lose all of that. Well, so this is something that we've been talking about before, about the, the idea of having too much fun. Where we talked about with DiCaprio and Django Unchained, and we talked about what was the other film we talked about that in relation to that. Um, it was another acting performance where they didn't get recognized. Oh, Ray Fiennes in Ray Fiennes in this list. Where I think one of the problems, which I don't know if he had so much fun, but he definitely dwelled into it. Too well, I think yet. if we're so we're if we're talking about an acting perspective, he clearly didn't have fun, but he was clearly acting this fucking face off. Right, and I think it's one of the things that probably leads to the somewhat ambiguous reception the universally acclaimed reception but like when you read between the lines the ambiguously the moral ambiguity of something like goodfellas is that he seems to be and something that you know i don't know if i should feel sorry for the idea that i responded to it to the that kind of fun in this movie but the moral ambiguity of the fact that like martin scorsese seems like he is just fucking all like you know he's all in that he's every trick he's ever learned about movie making he's throwing in this he's throwing in this film that he's you know the energy's so high i mean you you know you talk about the 1980 scene where henry's going from place to place and you know he, you've got all the soundtracks that are linked with the um henry nilson uh jump into the fire you know the yeah and that's like one of the things that we can talk about in regards to um that we talked about last week um, in regards to um, Rushmore and that, you know, we will talk about when we when we ever get to talk about um, Lynn Ramsey's Morven Collar, um, the idea of like the perfect song and ha- what makes a song the perfect song for like any certain moment. And where I think in Rushmore and uh, Morven Collar, they're not doing just like sound and rhythm and feel. They're doing um, like context and subtext and lyrics, and they're trying to express something in the movie using the whole of the song and not just the feel. Where I think that Scorsese is just using like the feel of a song. Like, yeah. there's no reason that "Sunshine of Your Love" should be playing when Jimmy's looking at Morty. Um, well, he does. He does that. Well, sure, sure, sure. Films, yeah. But like, you know, the rhythm of that of that scene is. How that scene that scene works because he establishes early on the rhythm of that scene with that song, um, but the lyrics don't really you know I'll jump jump into the fire, you know you could you could um, you could climb the mountain you could swim the sea, you could jump into the fire but you'll never be free. That's got a loose it's got a loose relation to what's happening here, but not like a not like a great one. And I feel like Scorsese wasn't worried about that. He was just like oh you know it would be good. good you know it would be a good song yeah this song. Or, you know, when they're showing all the coke and they're cutting up with the cars and they're playing Jimmy Shelter. Shelter. Yeah, exactly. Which he reused in Departed. All the fucking time. Um, Is that it just, it sounds good. It sounds fucking cool. And it does. It does sound cool. It does sound good. But is there, especially in a 2018 perspective, like you said, are we obligated to perceive that coolness, not just from an aesthetic standpoint, but from a moral standpoint? Is it okay f- morally for this to be cool, or is it? Do you have to establish like a moral baseness with this? And I think it's the thing, like like we've talked about, is just like you have to make that decision yourself. 
And as long as you're able to defend that decision, you know, I mean, as long as you're ready to defend that decision, that's when you do that. And I think with something like Goodfellas, I don't feel the, the desire to defend it. I, I feel like I can f- firmly be in the camp of somebody who can leave this in the past. Mm. But for you, obviously, you know, it's still a fun movie. And but again, it's just a, it's a, it's like a feel. has an energy to it. Yeah. Which I agree with. I, I agree with. There's a lot of energy to that. Makes There's me... a lot of. Of it excitement makes me... to it, but it's an excitement energy to me. Oh, it's personally, gross. It's uh, but I kind of, you know, I... I, I kind of agree with you. But it's funny because I respond more from a typical violence standpoint, from like a catharsis standpoint. You know, you, they, people talk about a lot. You use movie violence as a catharsis for things. Um, I respond more to the violence in Goodfellas. I find the violence in Goodfellas more legitimate than I find the violence in Scream. Because the violence in Scream is nonsense right. maybe that's why I like maybe that's why I enjoy horror movies is like there's, there's a, so there's much a separation space. and that's why like I don't like the torture kind I of saw you. films because there's like some sort of slight realism oh, see, but that's, I, I feel... can watch a movie like Hatchet and be like oh look at that man getting his like head ripped off because it doesn't happen I feel the same way about the saw films and like the hostile films and you know Eli Roth films as I do about Scream they're just silly but there seems to be a weight to the stuff in Goodfellas, which both gives it its moral ambiguity, but also its excitement. So let's wrap it up here. Um, I think Joe Pesci stabbing Billy Bats and whoever in the ghost mask stabbing uh, Drew Barrymore. Casey uh, Becker. It's a good essay. I challenge one of our listeners to go out and write that essay. Compare those two scenes. Compare the two stabbings. And email us your Word document of that essay. Or Google Docs. Do you read Google Docs? Either way. Or, uh, or leave, Google Docs. Don't, don't, don't pretend it's yours. We, we're going to take full credit for your writing. <laughs> yeah, put our names on it. Yeah. Um, you choose who. You know what? We're giving you that agency, guys. <laughs> you can either put Thomas Nolan or Mario Ponzio. Um, and send it to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Really quickly, before we wrap up, uh, we did do, we had the second round of Trailblazers. Um, we said it finished with a little bit of a high ABV burn. Let's give it a shake. And so we said, uh, you know, tumble it a bit, tap that can before you pop it. Mm. It works a lot better. It, it, still, has, a, it still has a burn at the end. A little bit, but not as it's bad. It's a softer burn. It doesn't have a, um, a refluxy burn. Yeah, at no, the end. It it's just, doesn't it's, linger. It's your, got something else. Um, it's, just, it's just a nice little finish. Yeah. Finishing burns. So our social media dominance continues. Uh, so you can visit us on Instagram at what? Pivotal what? Film. Okay. Uh, our Pivotal Film activity has been a little low so far. I'm going to try to boost that this week. Uh, you can also visit us at Film Pivotal, mm-hmm. uh, which I've been trying to regularly update Twitter. On Twitter, uh, yep. Uh, yeah, I know it's Film Pivotal. I could have corrected it, but... I found it funny. So for yeah, now, it's going to be it's film pivotal. It's ironic. Um, you can also email us. Please email us. Yeah, or at, go to, um, if you're interested in what our lists look like to this point, or um, if you're interested in what beers we've been drinking, there's much a most full likely, list. Most likely, you're mostly interested in our Of beers. those things. Um, you can. There's also links to the Twitter. There's also links to the Instagram. There's links to um, where you can subscribe to us on um, Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get podcasts from um that's at pivotalfilm.com pivotalfilm.com anything else 
pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com for all your emails. If you want to talk to us, no one's... Or if you do know, if you have any questions, you can also tweet us your questions. Mm-hmm. We want questions. We're waiting for like a few We are episode. waiting. We're Literally, if we get one question, we're doing a whole mailbag episode on that one question. And you've listened to us. <laughs> we can pontificate until literally our yeah. small intestine has become an external fixture of our bodies. That is actually happening to us right now. Yeah. So um, go see a movie, drink a beer, and we will talk to you next week. 